reading from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Rob, the Lord is my shepherd. Begins uh, not only the most popular psalm in the book, which is what we've been considering the last couple of weeks, but also some of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. Uh, Definitely up there with the Ten Commandments, even the Lord's Prayer. The Lord is my shepherd. Some people who have Little knowledge of God or of the gospel have found comfort in these words. Maybe that's you today. Some people who have loved Jesus all of their life have died with these words in their ears. Maybe that will be you one day. Many of us have probably considered these words at a graveside or at a funeral service, chosen because they were a favourite of the deceased. But despite its popularity, it's also rare that we consider it on a, on a regular Sunday. And so that's exactly what we are doing this morning. And it's only right that we start with these five words, the Lord is my shepherd, because the psalm is firstly about relating to our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. You'll notice that the the word Lord in your Bibles there is in capitals, as it often is in the Old Testament. And that's to show that the writer is using God's special name, the name Yahweh or Jehovah, the name that literally means I am. I am who I am. It is the name that displays God's sovereign, timeless, unchanging nature. That he is out of this world. He is massive. But it's also God's covenant name. It's his relational name. It's the name that he revealed to Moses and Israel when he redeemed them from Egypt. And he established them in Canaan. And he gave them the law to to guide them, his word to guide them. It's a name that displays redemption and salvation. But also relationship. And closeness. David calls this God, Yahweh, my shepherd. It's it's relational, it's personal for him, it's intimate. But to the people of the time, it was also a bit demeaning. Shepherds were not a respected class of people. 
They basically lived with their sheep. They wandered the countryside with their sheep. They slept alongside their sheep. They fought off the sheep's predators. They, they had little human contact to kind of balance things out. They were weirdos. They were recluses, these shepherds. It was a job that was typically given to the youngest child in the family, the one with the least rights and the least prospects. And you might remember that that's exactly what David was, the youngest. He knew what what it was to be a shepherd. He knew it was a lowly position with all those brothers above him doing the more important stuff. But he was also a lowly shepherd who God chose to raise up as a king. You might remember we we considered that passage on the first Sunday of this year when God anoints David through Samuel. He was exalted by the God who doesn't look at outward features but who looks at the heart. And so when David calls God his his shepherd, he's not being degrading or, or disrespectful in that. He's being appreciative. He's being grateful. He knows what it means to care for sheep. The the, the commitment, the tenderness, the condescension, and probably a whole lot of frustration. And he knows that God does that for him, for his people, for us. This psalm, like most psalms, is not to be considered as just objective truth. And sometimes we do that, don't we? Whether it's in a sermon or as we read, uh, perhaps as good reformed people, that's often the way that we default. But it's personal. It's relational. It's intimate. Just as we saw with Psalm 139 a few weeks back. You'll notice perhaps in the first three verses of Psalm 23, it refers to God as He. He does this. He does that. But then in verse 4, it switches to you. You, Lord, do these things because it's a prayer. It's a personal conversation that David is having with God. It is relationship. And so everything that comes in the following verses of Psalm 23 has to be heard in the light of those those first five words. The Lord is my shepherd. Is he your shepherd? Will he be your shepherd, if not? And then once we've thought about relating to our shepherd, we can think about receiving, receiving from our shepherd. And it's summed up in the, in the three words, I, I lack nothing. Or six words in the older NIV, I shall not be in want. I have everything I need. I am content. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but who's content this morning? And then the rest of the psalm highlights what those fulfilled needs actually are. But before we get there, I think it's really important to think about this receiving business. In our culture, it's now widely recognized that it is harder to receive than it is to give. It's harder to receive 
Most of us would rather be the sponsoring family than the sponsored family in, for example, a compassion relationship. Most of us would rather give $100 to somebody unconditionally than to receive $10 unconditionally. And I think there's a significant amount of underlying pride in that reality. But also perhaps a little bit of that built-in God-reflecting propensity towards generosity. It's a mix, isn't it? As it always is with, with grace and sin. However, when it comes to God and when it comes to the gospel, we are primarily to receive. We have to receive. We have to learn how to receive. I read an article this week that highlighted five reasons we prefer giving over receiving. It wasn't a spiritual article. It was a pop psychology article. Five reasons. Firstly, that it's a defense against intimacy. We have to be vulnerable to receive, don't we? And that both contradicts and highlights the first point that we've just considered because receiving from God, it it comes in the context of this intimate relationship. We have to be vulnerable. Secondly, it it means letting go of control. And we don't like that, do we? So it is for, for sheep and their shepherds. If you've ever seen a sheep... Go to the shearers, you know, once you've flipped them over on their back, that's it, they're just, whatever. And it's the same position they go if they're going to be put down. It's, it's surrender. And we have to surrender to the leading and the guidance of the one who is truly in control. Third reason, we're afraid of strings attached. As we saw in our door knocking the other week, people are reluctant to receive a gift because there's this fear that it's somehow going to commit them to going to church. You have to go to church because you took this chocolate bar from me or something else. And deep down, we're like that too. Somebody offers something, we think, oh, does that mean I have to now sort of, you know, be their friend or, you know, what does that look like? Certainly one of the reasons people don't want to receive God's grace is because... They might think it means changing their whole life to be religious. Now I have to become a religious person. Fourthly, we believe that it is selfish to receive. It's selfish. And I think that this can be a belief that comes from misapplied and graceless religion. Religion that says, I shouldn't receive, I should only give. Or maybe it's a mask for believing we shouldn't need to be needy. We shouldn't be that kind of person. But in many ways, there is a selflessness to receiving. It's a giving that comes with receiving. And then fifthly, there is a self-imposed pressure to reciprocate. And I have to say, it's like the nonsensical evolution of presents at Christmas. It becomes so much more about an exchange of presents than just that desire to give presents. And just like the third reason, people think that God's gift of grace comes with the demand of reciprocation. Now I have to give money. Now I have to give time. Now I have to give morality. Now I have to give up fun or whatever else it might be. 
But while this psalm does call us to surrender like sheep, to be willing to receive, it also lays a lot of those other fears to rest. And so let's consider how how that happens through the needs that our shepherd meets, the contentment that he gives in the rest of this psalm. Firstly, he gives peace. Real deep down, fair income peace. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. God gives us peace in both rest and in activity. Not just rest, but in activity as well. Apparently, uh, I've, I've never worked with sheep. don't really have a desire to do so. But apparently they can be really hard to make lie down. Yeah, you can force them. But otherwise, there's uh, Philip Keller, who, who is both experienced as a pastor and also as a shepherd. There's not many people, I think, who pastor in both ways. But he says you've got to meet four requirements for sheep to be willing to lie down. They have to be free of fear of, of predators and things like that. They have to be free of friction with the, the rest of their kind. They have to be free of flies or parasites other things that might sort of make them itch or sick or whatever. And they have to be free of hunger. They've got to be well-fed and, and you know, satisfied. And it's not unlike the things that we humans need, is it? Safety from danger. Peace with each other. We get pretty worked up, don't we? Health instead of sickness. And the provision of, of physical needs. And so when God promises this peace and this rest, this is a big promise. It's huge. This is why he says, or David says, he makes us lie down. Otherwise, we're we're not inclined to, but he makes us lie down. Or in Ezekiel chapter 34, I myself, God says, will tend my sheep and have them lie down. This is the goal, that they can rest. It's a big deal. And like I said, it's not just for our rest, this peace. It's also for our activity, for our journey, for our work. We also need this freedom from fear and friction and sickness and hunger if we are to be productive. When it comes to our task, our mission of serving God and serving each other and serving or stewarding the earth. So there's peace. Secondly, there's life. There is life. He refreshes my soul. This is not just worldly life. This is not just sort of bodily or mental energy. It's not just physical sustenance. This is my soul. This is my spirit. We need to see how David, he uses this, this sheep-shepherd metaphor here in the psalm, but then he so quickly humanizes it. Sheep don't have souls, but we do because we are made in God's image. Sheep don't need to worry about morality, but we do because we're made in God's image. And so it's not just about food and health and safety, Physically speaking, this is about the restoration of our souls. About being spiritually okay. 
And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Then thirdly, there is guidance and righteousness. The morality that we just, that we just mentioned. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. For sheep, the right paths keep them from falling into a crevice or toppling off a cliff or something like that. For us, the right paths keep us from falling into the trap of sin. Being kept by sin. And our shepherd, he guides us through sometimes tricky footing so that we don't fall and get stuck. We might slip, but we don't get stuck. He guides us personally, as we've just talked about, by his hand. He leads us by his restoration. He picks us up when we trip. But he also guides us verbally, doesn't he? By his word and his instruction, by the Bible, our great guide in life. And eventually his word becomes flesh and he guides us by his son Jesus who walks the path before us and who carries us on his shoulders as we see in that wonderful parable of the lost sheep. He carries us. Or again in Ezekiel chapter 34, wonderful words, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. And this then points to the next need. Fourthly, that there is protection and there's comfort. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. For those who joined us last week, we looked at Psalm 91. And you might remember that this was our main focus, this protection of God's. His protection, which results in fearlessness in danger. Not lack of danger, but freedom from fear in danger. See, because the right paths include the valleys. That's what this psalm is is revealing to us. The right paths include the valleys, includes the darkness. They even include death. After all, until Jesus returns, life can only be reached along the path that takes us through death. It's a right path. But we don't need to fear the valleys. We don't need to fear the darkness. We don't need to fear death because God is with us. We don't need to fear that evil will overtake us or claim us or destroy us. God is with us. He protects us. He comforts us. He helps us. And he does even more than that. Look at the next need. Fifthly, there is deliverance and victory. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The imagery changes a little bit in this verse, away from the 
the sheep shepherd thing. But the connection back to what's previous is still really strong. Because this image, it adds to fearlessness, it adds victory. God doesn't just comfort us in hardship or in opposition or in persecution. He ultimately triumphs on our behalf. He takes us through it and there's victory. This is what it means to have a table prepared in the presence of enemies with refreshing oil on the head and a bountiful cup of wine. There's a number of ways you can interpret it, but most likely this is, this is like a victory banquet. And there's the presence of enemies because they've been defeated. They're, they're the ones who are captive. The celebration is at hand. God will deliver us. And this is exactly what we have in Jesus, isn't it? Not just an empathetic guide who leads us through the darkness and even the darkness of the cross but a triumphant conqueror who gives us life, who wins life on our behalf. And that life is the last need that's mentioned in this psalm. Sixthly, an eternal home. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We talked about it last week. It has to be eternity. Anything less is incomplete. We are made for eternity. And it has to be with God. It's not just one or the other. It's not just eternity or just God. It is both. It has to be both. And it sums up the needs that our shepherd provides. The relationship with him and the life that lasts forever. A life of peace, peaceful rest and peaceful activity. If that doesn't define heaven, I don't know what does. A life of righteousness and guidance in Jesus who died for us. We celebrate that for an eternity. A life of safety and comfort with God and without fear because sin is defeated. It won't touch us anymore. And a life of ultimate victory in the presence of Christ, our King. And that brings me to the point that I want to close on this morning. The redeeming of our shepherd. Because we can't consider this wonderful imagery in Psalm 23 without seeing how God rounds it out in Scripture. For we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If we are as needy as sheep, we are also as dumb as sheep. You've heard it before, haven't you? We're as dumb as sheep. We're as lost as sheep. And we are as likely to blindly follow other dumb and lost sheep as we are to follow our shepherd. That's who we are by nature. 
And so we all get trapped in the crevices. We all fall off the cliffs. We all plunge to our death. But what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He sacrifices himself to protect us. He jumps in front of the wild animals to shield us. He takes our fall in order to keep us on the ledge. He goes to extreme lengths to seek us out and find us. He redeems us from the crevice, from the trap. And he binds us up and restores us. Jesus takes condescension to a whole new level. Becoming a lowly human. Serving lowly humans and even dying for lowly humans. You could look at a shepherd and think, why would you do that job where you basically become as low as the sheep you're looking after? That's what Jesus does for us. So that we can have a relationship with him. So that we can have peace, righteousness, safety, victory, eternity. That is what gets us through any valley, through any darkness, and even through death itself. That is what gives us the deepest joy. And it's with those promises in mind that we can, it's still hard, but we can surrender to our shepherd. Will you receive from him? Even if you have to swallow your pride, become vulnerable, will you receive from him? Will you accept his offer, his gift, the gift of life, of peace, of joy, of protection, of righteousness, of eternity? Will you surrender to him? Let's pray. Father, what an encouragement this psalm is. These words that you wrote through your servant David. Lord, the peace that they give the hope that they give and the comfort. And Lord, we want to acknowledge that you ultimately humbled yourself. You condescended in Jesus to stoop to our level, the level of dumb, lost sheep in order to save us. We thank you, Lord, for all that you provide, that redemption, that victory, that eternity. And on top of that, all that we need in this life as well. Peace, guidance, refreshment. Lord, help us 
to surrender to you. To accept that you are a good shepherd. You've shown us your grace. You've shown us your unconditional love. Help us to accept it, to be vulnerable, to receive, and then to share it with each other, to share it with the world, to tell people that you as our shepherd is good news. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.